0: Today on IFS Talks, we are welcoming back Frank Anderson. Dr. Frank Anderson is both psychiatrist and psychotherapist, author, and lead trainer, program consultant for the IFS Institute. He's also the former chair for the Foundation of Self-Leadership. Frank Anderson completed his residency and was a clinical instructor in psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He specializes in the treatment of trauma, and dissociation, and is passionate about teaching brain-based psychotherapy and integrating current neuroscience knowledge with the IFS model of therapy. He is a lead trainer at the Center for Self-Leadership and maintains a long affiliation with and trains for the Trauma Center under the direction of Besser van Kolk. He's also the co-author of the IFS Skills Training Manual. Frank, thank you so much for being with us today on IFS Talks.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you for having me.
2: So, welcome back, Frank. Last time we met, it was December 2019. A couple of months before this pandemic strike, how have you been those days?
1: Wow, so that's a that's a loaded question for sure, right? The world has changed, and a lot has changed for me, you know, both personally and professionally. Honestly, um, and both for the better in some strange ways. So I can part. I have parts of me that feel a little bit guilty about that honestly, because I know there's so many people throughout this world that are suffering and so many people that have experienced such, you know, catastrophic losses with people they love, as well as losses financially. So it's a strange place to hold where I'm at personally. The thing for me personally, it's been so wonderful to be with my family so much. I mean, I know a lot of people have talked about this, that it's pulled me back from traveling. I did so much travel before, and I'm not traveling that much anymore. I'm sitting at home, and I'm doing workshops virtually. And I've been spending so much more time with my family, which has been just so wonderful. Everybody has benefited in my family from that. You can really tell. So for that, I'm really grateful. And there's a part of me that really hopes that I never get back on that travel wagon again because it was it was fun and exciting but it was also um a bit wearing on me i think personally which i wasn't aware of um and it also had an impact on my family so that piece is good i have a teenager who's super wanting to get out into the world so quarantining is hard for him for sure but our family overall has had some amazing time together in the last six to eight months. And then work has been, you know, as a trauma specialist, primarily when the world is in a global trauma, I'm in high demand. So I've done a ton of workshops. All of my workshops have been transferred um, from live events to online events. Like when I do these Zoom calls now, I put, want to put the pictures of where I'm supposed to be in my background. You know how you can change your Zoom background? Going to Korea, I'm going to Israel, I'm going to Portugal. So I want to put the picture of where I'm supposed to be when I'm sitting in my home office. So that's been a very interesting time for me. You know, I, I can certainly say I don't enjoy teaching as much online, even though it's easier and much less stressful because I just love the personal connection. I just love being with people. Um, so that's been a little bit of a mixed bag, but I am super, super busy right now.
2: Beautiful, so it looks like your parenting intensified.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. I, I have a lot more for this new curriculum. Teaching by being at home 24 seven.
0: You've got some firsthand experience. You got that right. Maybe some parts that come up. That's exactly right. Parenting a teenager. Well,
1: you know, interestingly enough, that is what this whole curriculum is about. This parenting curriculum, honestly, was about my journey as a parent. You know, um, I can honestly say, which was interesting, as I pulled this curriculum together, that that is what made me go into IFS was having children. Oh. I didn't realize that until I started working on this curriculum because I was the psychiatrist for Bessel van der Kolk at the trauma center for many years. I was doing workshops for him on PTSD and trauma, um, psychopharmacology, and then met Dick Schwartz right at the time that my first son was born. And it was an interesting, you know, um, having someone who has a trauma history himself. Um, I did a lot of work on myself, but having kids... Activated something so much deeper within me, you know, and so that really activated a lot for me, especially because of my young attachment wounds got really triggered and activated, and it shot me into IFS. That's why I dove into IFS to begin this whole journey, which was in two thousand and four, I believe, when my first son was born. So this topic is near and dear to my heart and very, very personal uh, because of what got triggered and activated in. Um, for having kids,
2: you were just presenting a one-day workshop on parenting through IFS. You called it Frontiers to Transformation," and you are just um, sharing that um, your interest on IFS. Came directly from your experience as a father, so it was so central for you to get into the IFS model and community. Let us know how can IFS help us as parents. So,
1: yeah, and you know it's interesting when I kind of start teaching this. So I've taught it, taught it in you know three hour workshops now, full day workshop, teaching it at the Networker this year in their conference. Um, I've really, it was important for me to focus on parenting, not on raising children. And I'm making a distinction here in this workshop because there are so many books on raising kids and they focus on children. And the thing for me that was so vitally important was focusing on the parent. This is really a workshop about parenting. I I don't consider myself an expert at parenting. I might be an expert at IFS because I've been doing that and teaching it for a long time. But this is about that parenting journey and how triggering Mm -hmm. and activating it is for most people. It's the hardest, the most uh, humbling, the most rewarding experience of my life, hands down. And I think for many people, you know, it's it's such a challenging um, journey to be a parent. And so I wanted this curriculum and I wanted this workshop to really focus on parents. Because what I experienced personally was being triggered and activated by my history, you know, as you have kids. And one of the things Mm -hmm. I talk about, kids are primitive and immature by definition, okay? That's what they're supposed to be. But what typically happens for parents is that children's primitive, immature behavior mimics protective parts. And so we often get triggered by our kids' normal behavior. And our wounds, as parents get triggered, if you were yelled at or screamed at or grew up in an emotionally abusive environment, that's normal behavior for kids when they're young. And there is this confusion that happens for people who haven't done their work. And so they get their wounds get triggered Mm -hmm. and their firefighters come out to stop the behavior. So there's a there's a distortion and a confusion Mm -hmm. often for parents because of their unresolved history that gets superimposed Mm -hmm. on normal kid behavior, which then, of course, perpetuates wounds in children.
0: So you teach parents how to rec- begin to recognize what's getting activated in their own system by their kid's behavior and to trace that back to how they were affected by attachment wounds or, or trauma.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, I make a distinction, you know, this is one of the beauties of IFS, <clears throat> because most therapists, so, so so, I'm teaching right now mostly therapists who working with parents, right? I do want to bring this to the general public to be able to also teach parents, but we don't have a general public forum yet. So right now I've been teaching IFS therapists or people who are IFS informed or trained how to work with their clients who are parents who come in, you know, because oftentimes I don't know any psychotherapist who doesn't hear about um, parents that come in and complain or talk about their kids, right? Oh, my God, I had this horrible interaction with my child. So one of the things that I'm doing in this curriculum is differentiating between parent coaching and parent healing, because I think a lot of therapists do parent coaching, right? But I want to take it one step further. I want to help IFS, people who are IFS-informed, go beyond parent coaching and work on parent healing, because there's wounds to be healed in these interactions, as opposed to just giving suggestions about what to do or what not to do in difficult interactions with their kids.
0: Can you talk about what that looks like?
1: Yeah, I've got a lot of things that I've kind of, another kind of application of the model. And so one of the things that I'll do is, well, let me back up, I'll talk a little bit about the parenting journey starts so much more before a child is ever born, okay? And so I have people look at, um, I do what I, I call um, uh, anticipation exercise. Of what, what was your hopes and dreams for having children? Because those hopes and dreams and expect I call it the expectation exercise. Let me back up a little bit because this is what I do when I start working this curriculum and teaching therapists to really be able to work with their clients who are struggling in parenting. I do hope um, to be able, as I said, to bring it to parents directly, but right now I'm working with IFS therapists helping their parents um, with their struggles. I like to do what I call the um, expectation exercise, and what I do in this expectation exercise Is that I have people just start journaling about why they're even having kids. People don't have children unless they have certain expectations. And this journey often starts well before a child takes their first breath. Okay, and people have all these expectations. And so I want, and those are parts, those are unconscious parts that typically have influence over these children before they're even born. So I really like to get people to start looking at why did I do this? What am I trying to hope to correct from my history? What am I trying to hope replicate from my history? So that, you know, some people, I, I, you know, some people will spend years and years and years to try to have a child. They go through infertility mm-hmm. and they do things like this. Other people, like my yeah. sister, we have this running joke, took me years and a long time to have children. Let me tell you, as a gay male, it's not an easy thing. My sister, on the other hand, was like, oops, I had an extra margarita. When we had our anniversary and I got pregnant, and I'm like, oops, you had an extra margarita? Excuse me. (laughs) So there is this range of how people have kids. Some people plan them. Some people don't, right? Yeah. All of that influences the parenting journey, and most people are very unconscious about that. So I start looking at that,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. okay? Then I also look at family legacy, gifts and burdens. So many people are trying to replicate things that they loved about their childhood, so many people are trying to correct things from their childhood. So before it even starts, I wanna get parents and therapists to start thinking about all that goes on to influence that journey before a kid even, like I said, takes their first breath. So that's, for me, was very important in my own world, my own parenting journey, but it also what I look have people look at is when expectations and reality crash. Because we all have these expectations, but then the reality shows up. What kind of kid you have, what's the gender, who they are, what kind of child they are, often doesn't meet our expectations. And people get triggered when reality crashes with expectation. So I'm really trying to get people to be much more mindful and thoughtful about their potential triggers, right? Because there's so <laughs> many things that go into triggering. Expectations, wishes, Family legacy, gifts and burdens. There's this whole spiritual dimension to parenting, which I like to talk about. Also, who gets what kids and why? I don't think that's so random. Okay, I often say we get what we need, not what we want in children. And I really do believe that. I've grown so much with my kids, well beyond what I thought was ever possible, because I got exactly what I needed in my life journey and what I needed to grow on. So there's so much that I'd like people to explore in this curriculum that I don't think people are too conscious of often. Then then I have this whole way of helping people, like I say, when your kids become your perpetrator, like when kids start triggering parents, right? Because the protective parts in parents start seeing kids as perpetrators you know, if kids fight, if they yell, whatever they do. And so then I have this way of of breaking down the interaction. Okay. It's a method that I've developed. In some ways, it's somewhat similar to Tony Herbine-Blank's method of tracking the sequence with couples. Mm-hmm. Yes. I have a version that I've created with child, parents and children. I'm looking at the child's behavior, mm-hmm. differentiating whether it's, a part of the child or normal kid behavior, looking at the parent's behavior, how much of it is triggered from their history, how much of it is a normal response to the kid. But then I'm also looking at what I'm calling beyond the behavior. What's underneath it, right? What are the wounds and exiles either in the child or either in the parent? What, Because there's a lot of different scenarios. As you start breaking down these interactions between parents and children, there's a lot of different possibilities that I've discovered. You can have normal part of parent with normal part of kid. You can have a triggered part of a parent or a protector with a normal kid response. You can have a protector in a kid interacting with a protector and a child when they've already developed the wound. Okay, So there's all these different scenarios that I have the therapist help the parent deconstruct because different things need to happen under different circumstances. And what it's, what's often come out of this curriculum and working myself with parents is kids get identified, significant problems within children get identified that were ignored. Kids that are suicidal, kids that, you know, the behavior is really wound driven. You know, so I've been able to get a lot of kids in therapy, a lot of kids getting the help they need, maybe get on meds, where there's been a lot of fighting, yelling, and screaming. So we can identify problems in children, but we're also healing these wounds in parents. So when you can identify what the original wound is based on the parent response, you heal these wounds and the parenting is dramatically different as a result of no more being triggered by their kids' behavior.
0: share an example of that with us?
1: I uh, just happened to have a couple hundred
0: <laughs> <laughs> I had a of my own personal experiences.
1: <laughs> no way. Uh, it's really because that is exactly the, the, the way this curriculum came came about, right? So yeah, I can give you an example. I'll, I'll give you an example of one that um, is kind of a, a good outcome, if you will um <clears throat> so as most everybody knows i do have this trauma history and my kids know that okay one of the things that i did which i feel was very important because kids will take responsible ability for anything parents won't okay so i have a very strong startle response and my kid, I have two boys super active we have a trampoline in the backyard they will jump on me pommel me my parts say a surprise attack me often, okay? These are, these are very <laughs> active boys. And what I would do is have a huge reaction, okay? Big startle response, which would freak them out because it was an exaggerated response. But at least I was able to say, hey, guys, this is Papa's response. You know, Papa told you he was hurt when he was a child. I would take responsibility for the reaction. OK, so this is mine, but they still were in relationship to that reaction, even though they didn't take it personally. So they knew I'd have a big reaction. <clears throat> and this is what I talk about also in there, that parts of children develop relationships with parts of parents. And there's very complicated part to part relationships, right? So different parts of kids have relationship with different parts of parents. So I'm speaking to one part of my kids who knew about this extreme reaction in me. It was very bizarre because over the over the winter I was able to heal that wound more around physical abuse. So it was so surprising to both my kids and me. We were in the trampoline in the fall. I have my typical, "Oh my god, don't do this," right? They know that when they're jumping on me, we're in the trampoline and they're being rough. It was so surprising because in the spring After the winter, because I live in New England, the trampoline is full of snow in the winter. We don't go on it. We're in the trampoline in the spring. My son pummels me. I say, honey, please be careful. Well, he looks at me in shock, like he's waiting for the big reaction, right? I look at myself in shock. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is the way normal people react. And it was a moment for both of us that was really surprising and he was really kind of taken aback cuz he was in relationship to my triggered and traumatized part before which wasn't in me anymore because my wound was healed over that winter and so we have this different relationship now like i can be much more appropriate when my kids quote surprise attack me or throw something at me that i don't expect i'm i have a more normal response and they st- are in relationship to a parent who acts more appropriately. I'll teach them, hey, be careful, be appropriate. You gotta guys watch your body. But it was a dramatic difference for us. You know, and that is that example of the way we act when our parts show up who are protecting our wounds, versus the way we react when we're not being triggered. And and kids are always the recipient of this, even when parents aren't intending it you know i know no malintent on my part just a, a, a manifestation of my history and the impact that that has on our kids over and over again is pretty impactful and powerful so if i can help minimize that i'm good
2: Frank, we have been seeing some publishing activity applying IFS to children and parenting. We can name some, like Art Mons, Transforming Troubled Children, Teens and Their Families, uh, Lisa Spiegel, Internal Family Systems with Children, and more recently, On Education, Roger Goddard, I, I guess, Using Internal Family Systems to Build Your Child, School and Life Success. And of course, all them inspired by the pioneer work of Pam Krause, Applying IFS to Children, and the chapter on IFS with Children and Adolescents on the New Dimensions 2013 book. So, is there space for a book more focused exclusively on IFS and painting
1: I think so. Because all that you've mentioned, it, you know, and another, Leslie Petrick is another person. She's an assistant trainer now, yeah. and she's doing some work in this dimension. I, You know, I just did a online Uh, IFS immersion course. um, And I interviewed Pam Krauss. like it was we did all the different dimensions of IFS, um, not all the different dimensions, but many different dimensions of the IFS model. And I interviewed Pam, who's one who's, you know, the founding member of working with kids, you know, so there's a lot of great work being done on helping kids working with kids, right. And, uh, of course, anybody who works with kids does to some degree work with parents. Okay? You can't kind of work with a child without working with parents. Adolescence is a different story, but younger kids, of course. So I, I would imagine that all of them do talk about the parenting work in some way. But I do feel like I'm taking, I'm looking at the specific dimension of it. And, and yes, I think there would be a book in that. I don't know when and if I'm going to write it. I'm pretty busy. But yeah, I think, you know, I think, most people work with adults. Most therapists work with adults. There is a percentage of people that work with kids. And all the work that's being done that you just mentioned, Annabelle, is very useful for that. And I'm so happy that the, the work is evolving in children. IFS is evolving in the kid domain. You know, they're doing the the Foundation for Self-Leadership, for example, is doing all this work on IFS in schools. Now, that's a whole other piece where they're teaching teachers IFS, to bring it to the classroom. So I think there's a lot of applications in children. Again, personally, I have I have had such a huge transformation in my capacity to parent because of my own work in my own therapy, working on my own triggers. So that's just this personal passion of mine. Um, and that's where I want to focus my attention in this way um to help it you know the, for me the best way to help a kid is to help their parent exactly so I, you know i think there's room i think there's room as we continue to expand this
2: and frank how difficult is it or not for you To share parenting roles with your husband how easy is to co-parenting with him
1: um it's a great question um and (laughs) as a result of our parent co-parenting issues i've developed this technique which i call the the um, triggering agreement okay so um i'll speak to and this triggering agreement really came out of my husband and my co-parenting together Okay, Because what ended up happening and what I saw over and over again is, for example, if he gets triggered for something, because we all get triggered, right? There's this normalization. that These people, the parents normalize their losing it behavior, I think. Oh, you, you get together with parents. You about, Oh, everybody loses it. It's normal. And yes, to some degree it is. I'm not interested in shaming any parent. But I know every single time a parent gets triggered, a kid loses their parent. And they're having to deal with some other energy. So I'm all about minimizing that. When I would see my husband get triggered, it was so obvious to me that he was triggered because the non-triggered person, it's obvious to, right? And my kids would look at me if my husband got triggered, like, what's wrong with daddy, right? So and I, this is not about blaming him at all. The same is true in reverse. When I get triggered, both my kids and my husband, they're like, uh, what's up with you, buddy? because you have this certain intensity. So what I was saying to him, instead of supporting the triggered parent, I'm removing the triggered parent. The triggering agreement that I have is working with parents, and he had to agree with me on this. Anytime you see me triggered, I want you to jump in, take over, and get me out of there, Okay, which is very hard for the triggered parent to do. Because when you're triggered, you feel self-righteous, right? But him and I agreed. And the same thing with him. I said, look, if I see you escalating, I'm going to jump in and you're going to leave. So I work with parents to this agreement. and You have to have a level of trust in the parent relationship together to allow your partner to take over when you're escalating. Not easy to do, but super important for the kid. I have the non-triggered parent. Jump in, talk to the kid, and acknowledge what the, the triggered parent was doing from self. You know, daddy really shouldn't have yelled that was wrong. And I have the acknowledgement so that the kid doesn't personalize it, you know. And I, well, I always ask the non triggered parent, because they're more in self, to say it in a loving kind way, not to trash the triggered parent. And then I have this whole thing around helping triggered people recover, right? So there's this, the the non-triggered parent jumps in, acknowledging what was inappropriate. Daddy shouldn't have yelled at you. What was going on for you? You know, what was happening? So that there can be a discussion for the kid. I have to remove the triggered parent, let them recover. And what I'll say is the triggered parent then comes back in repair only after they feel compassion for their kids again. Okay, Because when you come back partially triggered, you're still having an agenda. You know, you shouldn't, have yet, you shouldn't have done this. So I have a way that I've created because of the trial and error in our families to have that non-triggered parent step in and take over, to give some space and room for the triggered parent to recover, and then when they feel compassion to come in and repair. It's been pretty successful in our family. It's not 100%, okay? And I'm teaching the parents that I work with to be able to do this because you're not always together like this, right? Sometimes you're alone with your kids. But I'm, again, always trying to minimize triggering. The less triggering parents kids get, the better off things will be. So it was something I came up with as a IFS kind of strategy in the ways we've struggled in our family.
0: How does parts language go down in your household? I know a lot of IFS therapists' families are like, don't say you have a part. Oh, how how's, how's it land?
1: Yeah, I think it's important um, to use parts language. Interestingly enough, I have a great example of that. But the thing that I do teach around parts language, like you can speak parts language as a therapist. And any of us therapists knows that don't go over very well. My husband will be like, "Don't, don't you start your psychobabble with me. My kids are like, okay, head doctor, this is what the, okay, head doctor. So when you start talking parts language from that therapist expert position, all goes wrong. Okay. And I do not recommend that. What I do recommend is just incorporating parts language in your normal vocabulary. I don't think you talk about it. I don't think you teach it. I just think you do it. A part of me is pissed. A part of me gets angry. So I'm not asking them to do it. I'm not requiring them to do it. I'm not lecturing them. I'm doing it. And what I have found is that everybody just normally incorporates it. Okay? I don't have any expectations of them. I just do it. So modeling, for me, is the best example of how to incorporate parts language. Okay? And I have this great example. And this was when my youngest son, um, who has special needs, was, was... Came downstairs. Him and his brother were upstairs. I think he threw a truck at his brother. I don't. I don't know. It was something like that. But he said marches downstairs and he's like, "Papa, you're re- uh, you're really mad that I threw a truck at Logan, aren't you? But you still love me, right?" And it was that moment of like, "Oh my God, he got it! Like he totally internalized the parts thing." And he was pretty young. He was pretty young. So I was thrilled. I was like, oh, my gosh, he can hold. Like the parts language for children allows them to hold disparate feelings at the same time. It allows them to hold conflict. It's so valuable. But you don't want to preach about it. You just live it, right? And then it that was a great moment for me because I'm like, he gets it. He gets it. I didn't preach it. And he incorporated I have different parts, and he was able to address it. So that's the way I do it. I think it's important not from the therapist part of the parent.
2: Frank, you say IFS helps parents get to the real root of the issues for them. So you are inviting us to heal our wounds. Yeah. So it's not enough just to read the book. Right. You got that
1: right. And, you know, it's not enough to read the book. You know, I'm one of the things I really hope to do, right now I'm teaching therapists. I want to have experiential, I want to have like weekend retreats. I want to have experiential exercise. It, it, experiences for parents in this. That's the really the way to go. Right now, I'm teaching IFS therapists how to work with their clients, but it would be ideal because you have to experience this instead of reading a book, like you say, right? Books are helpful adjunctive tools. They're not the way you're going to really get this. The other thing I'll say, Annabelle, is this is not an easy sell for parents, okay? It really isn't. You know, this is why I I have parts up around all the parenting books that focus on kids' behavior because I think it's much more challenging and much more difficult to look at the ways you are harming your kids potentially because you're not intending to do that and look at your wounds because remember that expectation exercise I talk about? A lot of parents have children to correct their wounds, (laughs) you know, not to heal them. It's not like, oh, I'm going to have kids so I can go into therapy and heal my wounds. I'm going to have kids so I can give them everything I didn't get and that will heal my wounds. So it is challenging for people to really look at what's going on for them and to really do that hard work, just like it's hard for therapists to work when they get triggered by their client on their own stuff Right, it's the same thing as therapist parts working with clients. It is about the parents' parts when kids trigger when kids trigger them, and a lot of people would rather focus on the kid than focus on themselves. And I, you know, I I feel good about the fact that I'm a therapy lifer. <laughs> like I've been in therapy for a really long time and I am not stopping because I'm constantly doing layers and layers of healing, deeper and deeper stuff within me. It makes me a better person, but really more importantly, it makes me a better parent.
2: Frank, as you didn't yet published your book on IFS and parenting.
1: I'm hearing your subtle, but not so subtle suggestions for that. I love that. I'm going,
2: I'm going to quote Dan Siegel's book, The Whole Brain Child, that I believe say something to you. Yes. And this says, most of us don't think about the fact that our brain has many different parts with different jobs. For example, you have a left side of the brain that helps you think logically and organize thoughts into in sentences. And the right side that helps you experience emotions and read nonverbal cues. You also have a reptile brain that allows you to act instinctually and make split second survival decisions, and a mammal brain that leads you towards connection and relationships. One part of your brain is devoted to dealing with memory, another to making moral and ethical decisions. It's almost as if your brain has multiple personalities. Some rational, some irrational, some reflective, some reactive. No wonder we can seem like different people at different times. Looks familiar, Frank.
1: Is that, was that a quote? That's a literal quote from that book, from the whole Brain Child. Yeah, well, you know, Dan is such a big fan of IFS. And, you know, I was there, lucky enough to be there when Dan Siegel and Dick Schwartz did a two-day workshop together in Boston several years ago. So Dan totally gets this whole parts thing. Dan has done a beautiful job of integrating neuroscience, right, with parenting. And and I really like what he says because that totally makes sense to me from the parts perspective. The area that I like to look at when I'm I'm incorporating neuroscience and child development Mm -hmm. with IFS and parenting is this. So Dan is absolutely right. The, The thing that I like to focus on and Marty Teicher and Bruce Perry are doing some of this work, okay? Is it what mm-hmm. kids have critical sensitive periods of brain development under different developmental stages? For example, right? Like your prefrontal cortex is in a particularly sensitive period of development between 12 and 18 years of age. Your self identity is in a critical stage of development between the ages of seven and nine, okay? Imaginary friends. Between three and five. So one of the things I look at here when you're looking at the neurobiological development of a child is number one, which developmental stage triggers the parent because of the parent's history, because that happens a lot, right? Oh my gosh, I was raped as a as a teenager. When my kid's a teenager, I get triggered. So there's that piece. But there's also when parents are triggered. At certain developmental stages for children, it creates different symptoms as a result of which critical stage of development the child is in, okay? So we're looking at this intersection between brain development and when these triggering events happen, okay? Because, and I've said this before, I don't know many people who, I don't know many clients who have DID who were not traumatized during that age of three and five, which is when imaginary friends are normal. Right? Or clients who get parents who have a hard time with their kids between seven and nine, and then kids develop I don't have a self, I'm empty, I'm nobody. Okay, so we're looking at these critical developmental stages in children, and then the impact that triggering behavior by parents or any trauma for that matter will have on the developing child. So we've got to look at development along this trajectory. And then see what type of symptoms. You know, you're, you're traumatized as an adolescent, and you have, you know, difficulty with affect tolerance and impulsivity for a long time after that because you're interfering with normal development of your prefrontal cortex if you're traumatized as a teenager. So I want to always look at development and parental triggering in that way because they can synergistically cause symptom production in kids. <laughs>
2: Beautiful.
0: as a metric also to um, determine interventions not
1: yet i'm more using it as a clinical indicator like i don't know what interventions it helps me to understand developmentally oh so there was a lot going on when this kid was seven to nine right when i if i look at the symptom production in kids now one of the things is i'm you know um Right. I'll talk about this in a little bit, but I wrote a new book on IFS and complex trauma, and you're dealing with a lot of attachment trauma and things like this. Um, there are, when I look at the literature and the research um, in this, they are looking at these developmental stages, and they are looking for treatments to help prevent some of these symptom production. So I think an area is, as we see these critical developmental stages, what needs to be in place to prevent the development of these symptoms? So you can look at prevention when you're knowing what critical pieces are happening at what developmental stage. That's where I think the field's going in relationship to that.
2: Frank, it feels so good to sit with you and see how happy parenting you are living right now. But do you feel something is changing for better when it comes to parenting styles? Many times I got surprised by the pervasiveness of parental abuse and neglect. here in Portugal and Europe in general. What's your feeling?
1: Um, I'm mixed about it, okay? I think... um, things in some ways are much, are worse. Okay. And I think they're worse for many reasons. I think, you know, when I grew up as a kid, they talk about some of the parenting books talk about authoritative parenting. It was all about the parents in charge. They're authoritative. You do what the parent says. Our culture in society has shifted. This is not an authoritative parent culture that we live in. Kids have much more power and have much more control. In some ways, that's really great. Kids have a greater sense of self. They have greater identity. They can express themselves more. But we might be in a bit of a pendulum swing, if you think about it, because parents don't have the same kind of power and control in an appropriate way as they used to versus in an abusive way, okay? And the book that I love about this is Gabor Mate, and um, his name is Neufeld. can't remember um, the other person's name. I'll get that in a minute, but it's kind of um, Gordon Neufeld wrote a book on hold on to your children and um, hold on to your kids. Because what is happening is parents lose less and less power from self-energy, let's say, in the IFS perspective, right? Kids don't have authoritative parental figures to help raise them. Kids are kind of raising themselves on their own, okay? And so kids are raising each other through social media. So there's this way that parents get more abusive because they get more extreme to try to gain the parental control that they're losing as a result of more permissive parenting and as a result of society and culture allowing kids to have access to raising each other. I'll never forget this moment with my son. I felt so bad for him. This is when he was in middle school. And I I don't know, something was going on with his phone. I'm like, all right, you lost your phone. You know, he lost his phone for three days or something like this. And I looked through the phone and he's counseling these kids in seventh and eighth grade who are suicidal. And I thought that is way too much pressure for my son to be counseling children, his peers, on dealing with suicidal feelings. And these kids are kind of raising themselves in this way. So I think there is this kids are lost in some way. They're raising each other, and parents are losing that authoritative place, which I think is important. I talk about the parent self in my training, okay? That's different than self-energy, okay? And it's different than being an authoritative, controlling parent. And I think we need, parents need to gain that power from self-energy to parent kids. And I don't think there's a lot of that. I know I have that a lot more than I used to. Um, But I think it's hard for parents to step up and take control with the culture and societal pressures and with the way they're so busy. This is one of the things, this was one of those jewels of the pandemic. It forced everybody back home to be with each other, you know? So I, I think there's work to be done in our culture and society around the role of parent and being able to hold the power and authority in an appropriate way, not in an abusive way.
0: How how helicopter parenting fits in with that paradigm.
1: Yeah, I think that's I, I think there was this over involvement, right, with an attempt to be involved. But I, I think it went too much, right? And I think when parents lo- lose authority, they hover in an attempt to control, right? And to be involved. Because it's not a place. Helicopter parenting is not a place of power and authority and control, you know, not in the old abusive kinds of ways that could have happened. But I think its attempt to be involved and see what's going on without having the control, like let me be super involved and regulate it that way by hovering and being overinvolved, instead of having appropriate very
0: managerial.
1: Totally, that's exactly right. Yeah. That's one one thought. I don't know.
2: Frank, it's such a joy to talk with you. And I've known that you are going to publish a new book, right? Yes. What is it about?
1: Yeah, this is a book that's kind of, I would say at this point in my career, it's probably my life's work right now. Like I've been in the field of trauma since 1992 when I was in my residency. And, you know, I've accumulated a lot of knowledge over the years. I've worked with a lot of traumatized people. And this book for me is a culmination of incorporating IFS, in all of my work with traumatized survivors. And then in some ways, I would say expanding the model to be working with IFS and relational trauma, complex trauma and dissociative trauma. So the book is about IFS as it relates with complex or um, relational trauma. And I am so proud of it. You know, it is a labor of love writing a book, and I don't even know how people are going to receive it. But there's parts of me that I don't even care because I loved writing it so much and I'm so proud of it. So I hope people like it when it comes out, but I, I just love it, you know, and it's going to be coming out in March. Uh, it's going to be published by PESI uh, Publishing. They're the ones who published my other book on the IFS manual. And this is more of a textbook. It's not a manual. So there's a lot in this. And I talk very personally about my own trauma history, a lot of clinical examples. I integrate neuroscience and my um, life's work with trauma survivors. So I hope people will enjoy it when it comes out. I'm super excited about
0: it. Yeah, we really look forward to it. Hopefully we can get you back when when it's released and promote it and learn a little more about it.
1: Absolutely.
2: So Frank, thank you so much for sitting again with us and focus on such an important topic. It was a joy to be here with you and Tisha. And I hope we can keep meeting and sharing this model, our work and our lives.
1: I agree. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. I really enjoy doing this. So thank you for having me. And thank you everyone for listening.
0: Well, thanks so much, Frank.